0: Welcome to the Smart Talk Series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk Series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in December of 2021. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who had the pleasure of joining our guest, Dr. Joram Bauman, Dr. Bowman earned his bachelor's degree in mathematics from Reed College and his master's and PhD from the University of Washington in economics. Known as the first and only stand up economist, Dr. Bowman likes to inject humor into his teachings and analyze economic issues through a comedic lens. He is the author of several books, including Tax Shift and The Cartoon Introduction to Economics. The former is an analysis of how to align our environmental goals with our tax system, while the latter is a beginner's book to learning economics. When he is not writing, Dr. Bowman loves to perform his routine at companies, colleges, and conferences. He has performed for events hosted by Time Magazine, PBS, and NPR. He is also an activist supporting and leading multiple environmental movements, most prominently Clean the Darn Air, a movement created to encourage more environmental ballot initiatives in his home state of Utah. Dr. Bowman joined the Henry George School to discuss how we can improve economics education, how Canada implemented a carbon tax in Vancouver, and how taxing land value can improve welfare outcomes. Before we get to today's program, we wanted to let our listeners know that we are conducting a poll. It should be somewhere within the episode on your podcast player. We'd love for all of our listeners to participate. Do you think housing should be a human right? Let us know what you think. We're looking forward to seeing everyone's answers. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
1: Jeroen Ballman, welcome to Smart Talk. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Well, uh, my first question to you is this, are you still teaching in the classroom? A little
2: bit, occasionally. So I taught uh, in an MBA program at the University of Utah back in in spring of 2020. So that class went virtual halfway through. But that was actually my first teaching gig in um, in a number of years. I mean, I think the the honest truth is that for a while, like uh, I had it all. Everything was falling in the right place, and economics comedy was actually paying the bills. Believe it or not, nobody believes that, but it's true. I have made a living doing stand-up comedy about economics, uh, and then COVID hit, and it's been it's been a little rocky since then. But yeah.
1: uh, well, for, for for many of us, uh, COVID has has made life a bit rocky. Yeah, um, I, I just have a question about the quality of your students. I mean, based on your last teaching experiences. Uh, do you get a sense that they're far more committed to uh, being open to new ideas about how economics ought to be taught and what they ought to be taught? Are they searching for answers to the serious problems that you raise? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think I and I think that's generally true. You know, economics doesn't have the greatest reputation in terms of the classroom experience. Uh, and so I try to lighten things up a little bit. And and, and also, I mean, perhaps more importantly, right? Like you want to try to connect it with people's lives. So I think there's an awful lot. I guess my my serious take on economics education is that there's an awful lot of sort of Paul Samuelson's 1950s textbook that's still out there. And, and that stuff is great. But there have been all these developments in game theory and you know environmental economics and stuff since then. And I think those are in some cases, they're more, uh, they're more interesting for students, like it's more fun to, to talk about the prisoner's dilemma than it is to talk about, you know, sh- short run average cost curves. And, uh, and the environmental stuff, I think is connected to people's lives, also and a number of students who are interested in that. And so I think there's, uh, there's opportunities to not hide our light under the under the bushel, I think is the expression,
1: as I'm sure you you've heard often, there's a great deal of criticism about how neoclassical economics is taught, and the fact that it does does not really express how the real world operates and that's the message that i get constantly and the other economists that i work with on a regular basis they've taken that to heart it seems
2: yeah i mean i see both sides of that i mean i think that it's important to connect economics and classes and other classes do to people's lives i i'm actually a you know i'm a reasonably mainstream neoclassical economists so i'm happy to to argue about that but but really that's because for the things that i work on like environmental tax reform i don't really see a reason to move out of that right like the idea of carbon taxes or land value taxes for that matter i think is is squarely in the mainstream of of economics including neoclassical economics and you can certainly move outside that to ecological economics and 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 things like that but I actually think that that very, I'm gonna sound very square here, but the very you know the, the mainstream of, of economics like understands things like externalities and market failures and um, and, and things like that. So I feel like you know, I don't want to give it a bit too much of a bad rap.
1: Well, hopefully we'll have a chance to explore that a little bit more as our conversation moves along. I wanted to ask you, when did you discover that you had this ability to interject humor in talking about economic subjects? I mean, was that at a very young age uh, or it just sort of came upon you at some
2: point? Yeah, so I I mean, I was interested in comedy since I was a kid, but my brother, who's older than me, claims that I was not terribly funny growing up. Uh, But when I was in graduate school at the University of Washington, um, I was teaching uh, undergraduate classes, and so I got free copies of textbooks from folks who wanted me to try right. to use the textbook in their class, and one of the textbooks was Greg Mankiw's Principles of Economics textbook, very popular textbook, based on these 10 principles of economics, and I ended up uh, writing a parody of the 10 principles of economics, because that's what you do.
1: And I've I've listened (laughs) to it a number of times, and I recommend to our audience that they do so as well. You know, preparing for this conversation with you, I remember the comedian Dan Novello, who uh, took on the persona of Father Guido Sarducci back when he performed for Saturday Saturday Night Live. And he did a really funny routine about starting the five-minute university In five minutes, students would learn what they'd be likely to remember five years after leaving school. And on economics, the answer would be supply and demand. On business, you buy something and you sell it for more. And uh, it's a really funny routine that I also recommend to our audience if they've never seen it before. You know, he gives them a, a diploma at the end of the five minutes. They have a ceremony. He takes their photograph and sends them on to law school. <laughs> so, um, but, but I do, I think the humor is really valuable in such a serious subject. In my own classroom teaching, I've had students laugh at plenty of things I've said, although I hadn't intended to be humorous. But that's what... Helps keep people interested, in, I think uh, as you go through these subjects, more seriously. When did you begin to realize that the economics you were taught still needed further development? I mean, you've you've talked about you know the the textbook that you utilized, and and in your comedy, you sort of raise the fact that there are failings in this analysis. So when did it start to occur to you that what you were being taught in the university needed to be further developed or enhanced or revised?
2: Well, let me add a comment about Guidar Sarducci first for, for a moment. There's a quote that I really like, which I think may have actually come from the uh, bulwer Lighten bad writing contest. So it may be a, a fake uh, uh, quote. But the quote is that education is like a warm oven the food is gone, but the heat remains. <laughs> um, it's very deep. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> in, you know, when I was a graduate student, I, so I took a couple of economics classes as an undergraduate, came across this idea of environmental tax reform, like higher taxes on bad things, lower taxes on good things, so like higher taxes on carbon emissions, lower taxes on jobs and income and savings and investment, kind of the um, the idea that Al Gore summarized is tax what we burn and not what we earn, uh, and so and I remember thinking that that was kind of this intellectually beautiful idea, uh, and that one that might actually work in the real world. Uh, and when I don't have my comedy hat on, when I do serious economics and activism, I've spent uh, you know a bunch of my career banging my head against that wall, um, and and. I, before all that though I went to graduate school and I did some TAing for you know other faculty members for some for some well for the for the senior faculty there and you know there's kind of this idea that the, the fellow I TAed for a guy named Paul Hain who's uh, not not alive anymore but um, he sort of his idea was that you want to teach students how the car works properly before you talk about how the car might be broken uh, and I was never super comfortable with that because a lot of students will never take a second class in economics, right? I mean, there's a lot of um, if you're just taking, there's a lot of the economics curriculum that's sort of built towards economics majors, I would say. And so if you are taking introductory micro, and then you're also taking intermediate micro, and then a bunch of advanced classes, then that's, that's a different approach to teaching than if you're coming at it, I think, from the view that, 80% 80% of the students have, which is that they're taking one class in economics or maybe one micro class and one macro class, and then that's it. Uh, in which case, I think it calls for a little bit more uh, flexibility in terms of talking about market failures and, uh, you know, environmental tax reform and, and things like that.
1: That was my experience. I was a business administration major, and so I had the required micro and macro courses, and I really didn't think too much about, you know, economics as a discipline for many years uh, after, um, although constantly worried about what was happening in the real world in the economy and listening to economists of different stripes talk about, you know, from a very different perspective what was happening. So on one hand, you're listening to John Kenneth Galbraith, and then on the other hand, you're listening to Milton Friedman, uh, and then all the different voices on economics in between that, that are media personalities. And I think for many of us who haven't studied economics to the depth that, that you do when you're earning a PhD, become very skeptical about, about what economists really know. And certainly that's within the Henry George community, that skepticism is pretty deeply felt because of the, the, particularly recently, of the failure of economists to forecast the 2008 crash and then to then explain why it occurred. I know that's not your specialty. Your, your specialty of interest is environmental economics, but, but I think that does cause the, the public uh, to have a, um, a very skeptical view of what we hear from what we think of as our experts, right?
2: I think that's, I mean, that's fair. It's especially in the, in the macroeconomics realm, uh, there's a lot more disagreement among professional economists, academic economists than there is, for example, among climate scientists about climate change. Um, uh, But there's also, I mean, there's also a lot of areas of agreement and, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the financial crisis, uh, I think, just because that's not my area of expertise. But, you know, I will say that I think it's important to separate the economic theory issues from the political challenges. And my sense, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I can tell you is that among academic economists, you know, 99% of them think that carbon pricing is a good idea. Uh, and my sense is I'm that... Glad i glad to hear not- you that,
1: say that, of course, because, you know, I think uh, carbon taxing is very consistent with Henry George's proposal to capture economic rents. And, you know, back in 2012, I found a quote of yours from the New York Times in which you described the carbon tax in British Columbia as, quote, the best climate policy in the world. And at the time, uh, the um, charge each I guess, for every metric ton of carbon dioxide was increased in British Columbia. And I wondered if you could update us if you know what's been happening uh, in British Columbia and is British Columbia still a best practice?
2: So what what was really neat in my view about the carbon tax in British Columbia was that it was a a revenue neutral carbon tax, meaning that the money that came in from the carbon tax was offset with reductions in other taxes. So it was... uh, uh, instead of increasing the overall size of government, the idea was let's sort of make the tax system smarter instead of making the tax system bigger. And, um, and so they would use the revenue from the carbon tax to reduce you know, uh, principally income taxes in, in the province of British Columbia. Uh, that happened for a number of years. Actually, the carbon tax was implemented, believe it or not, by a right of center government uh, in British Columbia, the confusingly named liberal party, but liberal like libertarian. Uh, where their, the premier at the time, Gordon Campbell, just said, look, uh, climate change is important. This is the way to tackle it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a carbon tax and uh, $30 per ton of CO2 at the time and still now is a reasonably hefty carbon tax. It's about 30 cents a gallon of gasoline, um, three, three cents a kilowatt hour of coal-fired power. And so we're going to have this carbon tax to give everybody, households, businesses, utilities, uh, an incentive to reduce emissions." Right, but we're going to use the revenue from the carbon tax to offset existing taxes. Does it have those- a,
1: an effective spillover effect, you know, with regard to other kinds of outcomes that occur when we don't tax carbon like sprawl? Is, is Vancouver still sprawling in the way that it had, it had been, or is it, has this had any effect that an environmentalists would hope it have of more intensive land use close in where the infrastructure already exists? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a carbon tax probably has a modest impact on that, just because you think
2: about thirty cents a gallon of gasoline, it's not going to be you know a huge factor in terms of how much people drive or things like that. I do think that Vancouver is a is a, is a very dense city, yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that the I w- I wouldn't give the carbon tax a whole lot of credit for that. But one one thing that happened is after the so the carbon tax went up to thirty dollars per ton of CO two, and then the Liberal Party was knocked out of power. This was the right of center party and the left of center party, the NDP, came into power and they eventually decided that they were gonna continue increasing the carbon tax rate, but they stopped making it revenue neutral. So for better or worse, the, the additional revenue from the carbon tax in BC, which I believe is now at or near $50 per ton of CO2, goes towards green programs and, and, and things like that. And Canada as a whole has a carbon price Policy that that each province is supposed to sort of meet minimum requirements to to put a price on
1: carbon. So so all that's pretty great. And your work is now moved from Washington State to uh, Utah. And I I listened to you talk about uh, the weather issues in Salt Lake City. That there are some pretty serious inversion problems with pollution. And I guess the, the campaign you're working on right now is to write am I correct to use the carbon tax as a way to help minimize the uh, air pollution problem? Yeah, so there is uh, local air pollution is a is a big
2: problem here along the Wasatch front. I live in Salt Lake City and uh, you know it's a top three political issue and you've got these inversions in the winter time that are kind of a combination of what I would describe as kind of bad unfortunate topography in the same way that Los Angeles has bad topography. So bad bad topography, uh, lots of people in industry. And Utah, you know, is a very uh, red state. Doesn't regulate the way that California does. So I think those three issues are uh, relevant. And so it's so that's a top three issue. And now we're seeing just since in the few years, four years that that I've been here, um, we're seeing an increase. What seems like an increase anyway in summertime pollution problems related to wildfires. Um, and so I would say that both of those things are connected to. Burning fossil fuels, uh, either through the climate change impacts on wildfires or just directly, the the uh, burning of fossil fuels is one of the major contributors to the inversions in the winter time. And so the Clean the Darn Air effort. And if you want to find out more, you can go to our website, which is DarnAir.org. Uh, the policy that we're trying to get on the ballot here in Utah in 2024. So we will we're fine tuning the policy right now, we'll collect signatures in 2023 and put it on the ballot in November 2024, is $100 million a year for local clean air programs. So cleaner school buses, you know, trading programs for folks to swap their lawn and garden equipment for electric, uh, things like that. And the $100 million a year was actually a budget request that wasn't fulfilled, but a budget request from Governor Herbert a couple of years ago. So $100 million a year for clean air programs, uh, $50 million a year for rural economic development, uh, eliminate the sales tax on grocery store food, which is another big political issue here in Utah, and pay for it all with a modest carbon tax on the fossil fuels that contribute to local air pollution and global climate change. So uh, the the summary pitch is that we're going to tax pollution instead of potatoes and put the money that's left over into cleaning the darn air. But I think you can see that the basic idea is is you know one of the same things that I've been working on for quite a while now, which is we should have higher taxes on bad things and lower taxes on good things.
1: Yeah, it's a complex uh, dynamic that occurs. We would argue that all the good that you're going to accomplish may be eventually capitalized into higher and higher land prices, so that as you do you know, free up uh, the economy from uh, the deadweight losses attached to certain taxes without the uh, uh, transfer of the public revenue system to land rent, um, that it won't have the, the, the deep effect that, that one would hope for just because of that, that way the land markets work. Uh, have you looked at that connection at all in your work? I mean, um, in, in, in tax shift, you do, you know, argue for a uh, tax on land value. So I wonder how, how you think about the two policies merging together uh, to work together.
2: You know the way i think about them is really and you can correct me if i'm wrong here but i think that they are i think they're both policies where academic economists are pretty much on board but that they're the challenges are in the political realm right yeah, like the, if you you're take absolutely class, right if you take a class in public finance um you can learn about you know efficient taxes and that's what economists focus on is like how do you get revenue with the least amount of distortions or impose corrective taxes or things like that right but i think what i've learned from being out in the in the real world with normal people is that uh is that most people don't think about taxes that way they don't think about efficiency most people think about taxes as fundamentally an issue of fairness and uh and people have what as an economist i would describe as as uh some unexpected ideas about fairness, right? Like if you ask, a lot of people think, for example, that sales taxes are fair, right? Because supposedly everybody, is, everybody pays the sales tax, um, but that doesn't really take into account that a lot of things that higher income folks spend uh, money on disproportionately, like healthcare education, um, are, aren't subject to the sales tax, not to mention uh, you know, savings and things like that. So uh, as an economist, I can say, hey, sales taxes are quite regressive, as a percentage of income, lower income households pay a lot more of their income in sales taxes than higher income households do. But if you ask the person on the street, the person on the street will say sales taxes are fair. Uh, And so that's, I think, I think that political challenge is one that, you know, that that's, that's the wall that we keep banging our heads against. And um, uh, it's certainly proven,
1: it's proven to be the case for over a century. Uh, And we've, we go through these battles over, over what's the right sort of way to raise public revenue. And um, certainly, I think the big change occurred when uh, Art Laffer came up with the idea of supply side economics and sold it to uh, the conservative Republicans. Uh, but he also sold it with the idea that lower marginal tax rates on higher ranges of income would generate higher federal revenue. And unfortunately that part of the prescription never came uh, to fruition. So we have, we have this history of battles over what's the right public policy. I, I wonder whether or not our, po- our politicians have much energy to study the actual implications of these policy choices. And I think they
2: have. I think they have the energy to study them. Like in Washington State, there was a big. There have been lots of study bills about studying the tax system. The question is, do they have the energy to actually change things? Change. Changing things is hard. Like the the premier in British Columbia who uh, implemented the carbon tax actually got kicked out of office a couple of years later because of a different tax reform measure that he tried to push through. So about the harmonized sales tax, I believe it was. So it wasn't about the carbon tax, but it was about another tax measure. And you know, if you look at, um, since I spent 20 years in Washington state, I can tell you that uh, Washington state and Oregon, just to the south of Washington, right, they're very similar s- states in many ways, but Washington has uh, a sales tax and no income tax. Oregon has an income tax and no sales tax and uh, both states, the people there have uh, vehemently rejected uh, opportunities to adopt you know, a, a, a different tax system. Uh, voters in Washington state have repeatedly rejected income taxes. Voters in uh, Oregon have, re- have repeatedly rejected sales taxes. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is just that people kind of like that they prefer the devil they know to the devil they don't know. There's a lot of skepticism in the general public about not just taxes, but any kind of public policy issue where there's a tendency, uh, you know, whether you want to call it cynicism or, or what have you, but there's a tendency to sort of say, well, um, things may not be great right now, but any changes are going to make things worse for me. And that leads you to to just say no and to sort of stick with uh, the system that you have, even if it's not all that great.
1: That's that's certainly my experience in my professional work. I I worked on affordable housing initiatives at Fannie Mae for 10 years, and uh, it was always amazing how much um, local opposition there was to changing zoning densities in order to increase the supply of affordable housing even when the potential beneficiaries were the adult children of people who lived in the neighborhoods. Uh, They'd rather have their their commute an hour to go visit their families on a highway than have the ability of their young adult children and their families grow up in the same area. It's, uh, It's a difficult challenge politically to get people to understand the long-term benefits of certain policy changes versus the short-term implications for them today or tomorrow. And I think that's what the work that you're doing is enormously important. And I'm sure that is one of the challenges that you face uh, on an ongoing basis. I, I wonder, in addition to what's being done in Canada, is there any place in the United States that you would identify as following best practices? in terms of climate change and climate yeah, policy in terms of climate change the the use of of tax so, policies and 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 a combination of of incentives for people to behave and perform consistent with the longer term objectives
2: yeah so i'm going to i will out myself as as um uh you know the on the center/conservative side of the political spectrum and and say that a lot of the climate policies that are out there um, they're either regulatory policies, which you know m- maybe they're the best that you can do. They're second best, whatever, uh, or they're carbon pricing policies. But the revenue from the carbon price, whether it's a carbon tax directly or auctioning permits, uh, you know, goes towards um, programs that that I would say have some questionable value. So uh, you know, like the high speed rail line in California that's you know supposed to connect San Francisco and Los Angeles. And I think it's currently on track to connect Bakersfield and Fresno or something like this. Um, there's, there's, um, it's, it's, it's very difficult. And this is what I encountered in the ballot measure that I worked on, right? The Initiative 732 campaign in Washington state in 2016, we said, hey, let's have a carbon tax. Let's use the revenue to cut the state sales tax and fund an earned income tax credit benefit for low-income working families. Uh, we thought that that was a pretty smart policy. I still think it's a pretty smart policy, but we ended up getting a lot of opposition from the left side of the political spectrum from folks uh, including Governor Inslee, uh, you know including the Sierra Club, a bunch of the environmental community, who basically wanted the Green New Deal. Like they wanted the they wanted the revenue from the carbon tax, but they wanted to spend it on their priorities as opposed to cutting existing taxes. Uh, and so that's that's hard.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, certainly my interaction with, with, you know, people who self-describe themselves as progressives and maybe are left-oriented, they have very little faith that markets can be made competitive and that markets can be, can operate in the interest of the general public. And you know, it, it's, it's a skepticism that's deeply ingrained because of, of what we've experienced, you know, for decades now, I think, in the United States um, and trying to, uh, I mean, Henry George is, is basically an individualist. He believes in capitalism. He believes in, in markets, but he also argues that markets will not operate to the benefit of society until monopoly is, is dealt with. And we still have in our, in our economic system with the laws that we live under, um, just an amazing set of benefits that go to rent-seeking type behavior, rent-seeking type investments over the production of goods and services. And I don't hear, unfortunately, I don't hear many economists talking about that, that sort of you know, contradiction. And maybe you know, it, it, it's just not politically interesting, or, or I don't know the reason, but other than a few economists who have really strongly embraced Henry George's ideas over the years, uh, Mason Gaffney at the University of California was, was probably the most you know, prominent member of that community. Um, it just doesn't find its way into the public discourse. How do, how do we convince people that markets can, in fact, achieve beneficial outcomes for all participants? That there's there's no. Right,
2: right, right. Yeah. But you have to you have to set up the structure properly. Right. You have to set up the, the you have to design the incentives in, in, in the right way. Um, so the, the way that I describe economics in my cartoon micro book is by saying that economics is about the actions and interactions of optimizing individuals. And that the key question is under what circumstances does individual optimization lead to outcomes that are good for the group as a whole? And I think that's what you're talking about where rent seeking is one of these cases where individual optimization leads to bad outcomes for the group as a whole because you dissipate a lot of economic value that way. Uh, and the, and climate change is another one and with externalities and market failures and things like that. And what's kind of interesting to me about economics, uh, you know, is that there's not an easy answer to that question. You have some folks who want to say that markets always work. And you have some folks who want to say that markets never work. And uh, the, the, the truth, at least as I believe it uh, and understand it, is that is that markets sometimes work. And that if you provide correct incentives with things like you know internalizing externalities with with uh, with tax system,
1: then you can get markets to work better. Well, I remember you know Adam Smith, always referred to as the you know the, uh, the architect of laissez faire economics. If one reads The Wealth of Nations, he was very much in support of government man you know intervention in the economy on behalf of competitive. Uh, forces he, he saw he saw the government as the appropriate referee uh, to make sure that markets operated without monopoly, um, but that seems to be that's forgotten by those who use the term laissez-faire uh, to describe their their economic beliefs. Um, yeah and then on the I, and then on the other side,
2: you have like I mean I think there is like you said some the general public has some skepticism about about markets. Uh perhaps warranted in, in, in cases, but I think they also have some skepticism that's also warranted in cases about, you know, about, about, the, about government action and uh, you know, the things like the Green New Deal, where there was a policy in uh, a very good study done by um, Michael Greenstone and Meredith Fowley at UC Berkeley. So some very high powered economists uh, looking at um, a home energy retrofit program that was run in Michigan. And, you know, the, if you go and you, and you read this paper, what you find is that there were incredible challenges of getting people to sign up for the program that was going to provide free energy retrofits for their houses. Right. And then when they actually did the red energy retrofits, the results were not nearly as, as promising as, you know, the energy models had suggested. And you end up with, um, you know, you end up with programs that are kind of disappointing. Uh, And so I like to, That's why I kind of like to to keep it simple where you can and say, like, hey, let's have a like the policy that worked on Washington state. Let's have a carbon tax. Let's cut the state sales tax and and call it a day.
1: Yeah, Even proponents of of Henry George's ideas at the local level, a taxation of land values, usually start in a discussion with political uh, leaders of of opting for a revenue, revenue neutral shift. And then let's see what happens. If the if good things happen, then we'll do more. If more good things happen, we'll do even more. Is that, is that in a sense what you think is the appropriate way to incrementally get to where we need to be with the carbon tax and with other pollution taxes?
2: That's kind of the way that I think about it, but I should be clear here that, I, you know, I when I say that I take off my economist hat and I put on my pundit hat and I'm not necessarily any better of a pundit than anybody else out there so the, you know the campaign I worked on in Washington State didn't pass in 2016 um, who knows what will happen with the measure I'm working on here in Utah I think it's a I think it's it's a it, it's a smart way to, to do it um, one of the other ideas that I've been exploring lately that I'm I'm kind of in I'm entranced with right now is uh you can tell i'm an economist because i'm entranced with tax policy issues uh you know one of the challenges with carbon pricing is that it makes um makes things like gasoline and electricity more expensive and a lot of people don't like that right like voters don't like that and our and legislators are hesitant to, to get behind it um but it turns out that in many states uh, States like Arizona, Georgia, New York, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Nebraska, there there are a bunch of states that have uh, sales taxes on electricity. So if you look at your residential electric bill, you see a sales tax. Right now, the sales tax raises the price of electricity, but doesn't give anybody an incentive, doesn't give the utilities an incentive to change where they're getting their power from. Right? If you get the power from coal or from wind, you're still paying the sales tax. So the idea I've been exploring uh, with some compatriots in various states, is what if you got rid of the sales tax on electricity and replaced it with a carbon tax on electricity? Or even simpler, what if you just said, "Hey, let's give a clean energy tax cut. Let's cut the sales tax rate on electricity based on how clean the utility is, how clean its its uh, carbon emissions are. Right? It's carbon and the carbon intensity of its output. And so, um, consumer bills wouldn't necessarily go up at all in that case." But the utilities would have an incentive to
1: move oh, move away from fossil fuels. Uh, so that's With the like, incentive be, being that, that consumers could opt to uh, uh, move their source of electric, electrical power to a clean energy supplier?
2: So that's a possibility in, in some states uh, where there's electricity choice. But I think even in other states, so uh, Nebraska, for example, is 100% public power. So all of the utilities are run by, uh, essentially by agencies where the board of directors are voted on by the people, right? So they have an incentive to say, okay, let's figure out the way to minimize the costs of providing electricity for our customers. And if if there's a a, a financial incentive to move in the direction of, of lower carbon power, then they have a reason to do that. Um, I think even investor-owned utilities, though, even in states where there isn't a, a consumer choice on electricity, the, you know, the u- utilities are all regulated monopolies, and they're regulated by the, you know, by something like the Public Service Commission in Georgia, and they're supposed to pursue least cost power, right? And so if the... Um, if you had a, a carbon tax or this clean energy tax cut idea that changed what the least cost power source was, moved it from fossil fuels to you know, nuclear renewables, whatever, then that would uh, presumably filter through uh, through, the, through the utility commission's decisions and through the choices that the utilities put before the public utility commission. So I think it works in, in places where there's uh, consumer choice, but I think it works in other, other cases as well.
1: How do you view the whole idea of cap and trade and the the creation of a secondary market for selling pollution rights?
2: Well, so, I mean, the economics of it is pretty simple. It's that cap and trade is uh, kind of an oddly shaped kind of carbon tax, right? So pretty much any policy that you could implement with cap and trade, you can come up with a roughly equivalent carbon tax. So
1: well, the the argument against it, the one that i have bought into is it simply creates fee income for brokers and it really doesn't do anything to reduce the you know aggregate amount of carbon that's being entered into the atmosphere
2: no i think that if there if you have a well designed policy
1: then i think
2: then you'll see impacts i think that uh, you know one of the challenges that a lot of cap and trade programs have had uh, historically, is that they issue too many permits, right? And so when you issue too many permits, you get a very low permit price and you don't get a very, you know, there's not much of a market incentive to reduce emissions. But that's what happened in the European ETS program, for example. But they're, they've kind of resolved that uh and now i think one of the challenges in europe is that energy prices have have gone up quite a bit uh you know in part because of unrelated issues in the natural gas market but i think the the cap and trade system is is uh is adding to that and um you know again i think you see with the yellow vest movement in france like there's an argument that says hey look people are concerned about the end of the month in addition to the end of the world and you got to figure out in my view a way to to, to put money back into their pockets, right, to make people whole so that they can say, hey, this is a smart environmental policy or, you know, a smart, uh, you know, property tax policy, but I can support it because, you know, if there's an increase in taxes over here, there's a reduction in taxes over there.
1: I wonder what your views are with regard to the you know, renewed emphasis on moving away from gasoline powered automobiles and trucks and, and adopting electrical vehicles. And my reason for thinking about this is that um, lithium batteries are pretty expensive. And, and it seems that this is going to be some sort of a, it's going to have a regressive impact particularly on lower and moderate income households if gasoline-powered automobiles are no longer being manufactured and they have to enter the market at a time when the supply of lithium available to put in the batteries is not going to increase exponentially, but it may result in very expensive uh, automobiles. Have you given any thought to the impact of this shift?
2: well wh- let me let me answer that in part by saying by telling you what i what I love about carbon pricing and what I love about carbon pricing is if you put a price on carbon, then the market takes care of all that right and if you know if lithium batteries are too expensive, then the market keeps gas powered you know uh, cars for a while and looks for sort of the low hanging fruit. Okay, and if you're not getting enough carbon reductions, then you can raise the raise the carbon price. Um, you do see these regulations, and um, you know about phasing out internal combustion engines. You know there's potentially some benefits to, to to doing that. And again, I want to recognize that climate change is a very difficult political challenge, right? So I don't want to sit here as a pointy headed economist and say, well, this is the only way to do it is is with a carbon tax. Um, but. It, You know you raise i think some reasonable concerns about ultimately people are going to want to be able to get from point a to point b and uh you know if you're banning internal combustion engines and you're not giving them a reasonable alternative uh then they're probably going to be unhappy
1: well the internal combustion engines aren't going to disappear for even if we went full speed ahead with, with electric powered vehicles, it's going to be 25 years before all of those vehicles are aged and off the road. I mean, my, my, my family, we still are driving a 2003 Toyota Camry that, that still functions very well. So there's no, I have no incentive to, to purchase an electric powered car. while as long as that Camry is on the road and continues to, to ride very nicely. But and it's, these are very difficult issues, as you say, politically. While economists can argue the efficiency issues, the equity and fairness issues are the ones that seem to have where economists have the most difficulty in expressing link with, with you know, proposed policy or existing public policy. Would you agree with that?
2: I think that I, I think that's true.
1: Yeah, yeah. we're, I mean, at the Henry George School, our emphasis is in, in teaching is very much on justice. It's very much on the issues of what sort of system, uh, economic system, produces the most just outcomes, and what do we need in terms of uh, governmental intervention, systems of law and public policy to achieve that, that outcome. And as you've indicated, um, it is a very difficult thing to explain to people that what what how they're living currently um, may, in fact, um, result as a benefit as a beneficiary of entrenched privilege under law, hmm. and that for the good of humanity we should be eliminating this entrenched privilege. Uh, but how do you how do you then give people? Um, The right incentives to agree with those changes. And it seems to me that the potential damage of climate change now has become the one message in public in the public policy discussion that will convince people that they that their style of living may have to change in order to save the planet and save humanity from ourselves. Is, um, that an, is that too deep of a of a cynicism? No,
2: no, it might not be cynical enough because I'm not convinced that that people are really there, right? Like if you look at, you know, I think Maine had a ballot measure where they it was about a power line and it got voted down to, to bring more hydropower, I think down from Canada. Um, I think you still see a lot of sort of nimbyism, you know, the not in my backyard idea. And I'm not, you know, even though I think climate change is important and I spend a lot of time working on it, right? I recognize that a lot of people, um, you know, especially here in states like Utah, but I think even in in left-leaning states, you know, if you ask people, do you wanna, you know, should we do something about climate change? They'll say, yes. If you say, okay, like how much are you willing to pay in a higher electricity bill in order to tackle climate change? Usually the answers are pretty modest, right? Which is why I come, I keep coming back to these ideas about like, hey, let's, Let's have a carbon tax and cut the sales tax. Let's have a carbon tax and eliminate the sales tax on groceries. Let's, you know, eliminate the sales tax and electricity, replace it with a carbon tax and electricity. I keep trying to come back to ideas that are pocketbook friendly.
1: Yeah. As the saying goes, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And, and, and we have to fight. We have to try to try to get something good and get people to accept that, that they've, uh, that some advantage to them has occurred, uh, even as they may have to sacrifice in some other ways. I This gets me to um, another area of, of public discussion now that's really taken off, and that is the universal basic income idea. Hmm. I don't know if you've given much thought to this, but I, I did want to ask you about it, you know, because there is potential with natural resource rents, uh, even the carbon tax, to create a sufficient fund that that would allow for a universal basic income. And uh, from, from my perspective in, in studying Henry George, um, you know, the fund should come from rents of whatever source. I mean, not just land value, but but there are plenty of other sources of rents that, that could be tapped to provide this. Um, yeah, so there's a group called Citizens Climate Lobby that works on what they call fee
2: and dividend, which is, uh, and there was I think it was perhaps based in part on a book that Peter Barnes wrote many many years ago called Sky Trust. That's right. Hey, well, right. Let's have, let's have a carbon tax, but then let's dividend the money back to everybody. So everybody gets a you know we collect all the carbon tax from everybody, and then we send everybody a check and. Uh, you still have an incentive to reduce emissions because the amount of the check that you get is depends on how much everybody emits right so if you can find ways to become more uh, to become lower carbon then you pay less in carbon taxes, but you still get essentially the same the same check back because the check is based on an aggregate of three hundred million people um, so I think that's uh, that's a, a reasonable idea um, I don't you know I would when I generally hear the the universal basic income idea, like it seems to me to be sort of an order of magnitude larger than what uh, what many of the folks who talk about carbon taxes or fee and dividend are are talking about, right? Like a, a fee and dividend policy might, you know, reasonably send households maybe maybe $600 a year, uh, and that would be a pretty hefty carbon tax. Um, I think six hundred dollars a year, but if you're talking about a universal basic income, you're talking about paying people, you know, ten thousand dollars a year or whatever it is. So um, again, I'd say that there's kind of an order of magnitude difference between be, between those two ideas. Although it's you know you could reasonably argue that the dividend is sort of a, a, a step along along the road towards something like a UBI.
1: Yeah, be- because my area of of writing is been focused on affordable housing for many years, my concern about a universal basic income is that uh, without some policy to construct more affordable housing, um, the increase in disposable income to lower and moderate income families will simply be capitalized by the market into higher apartment rents and housing prices or property prices. And so while you know, I'm very much in agreement with you that we need to try to get the markets to function effectively, efficiently, that in this case, it seems to me that the only answer is to have significant public subsidy, direct public subsidy of the construction of affordable housing. You're shaking your head. You seem to be nodding. So, I, do Mike, uh, are you are you in agreement that that is a necessary step? Uh,
2: Subsidies for public housing? Yes. You know, housing policy is also not one of my areas of expertise.
1: I, um, I, but just basic—it's a basic, you know, uh, expression of what happens in markets, and that yeah. is, if you increase the demand side of the equation without increasing the supply side, you're going to get increase in price. Yeah. And when yeah. we're not building uh, sufficient affordable housing to deal with the homeless crisis we have in the country, And so, um, I
2: think think that's a, I think that is a reason, very reasonable concern to have is about, about universal basic incomes getting capitalized into higher rents and things like that. Um, the reason why I'm a little hesitant is you say, well, let's subsidize more public housing. And, you know, I, I, there are, there are so many challenges with the housing market, not just about, you know, lack of land value taxes, but also with, you know, zoning and things like this, that, um, uh, I, I hesitate to, 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 to put a foot down on that. But I do think that if you look at California, for example, where they have, they've had these huge battles in California about, you know, uh, um, about measures to allow for more housing near transit stations yeah, or just measures in general to allow for more housing. I think they just passed a bill that said, okay, on a single family lot, you can now build a duplex. Um, and, you know, I think as your experience, as you mentioned, um, a, a lot of policies that seem pretty reasonable end up getting a lot of a lot of opposition from, you know, kind of from 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 the NIMBY crowd. So so politically, I think that's a that that's a that's a tough nut to crack. We have many of them.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, I, Carbon pricing is hard, too. You know, I, I have students, I teach adult education, so I have I have people returning to my classroom year after year. And I try to teach them the fundamentals of how the economies operate. And it seems to me that one year, two years, three years of study, coming to class every week, uh, having discussion, and then after the third year, they still ask some very fundamental questions. And I wonder, how can I be such a poor teacher? Maybe Guido Sarducci was absolutely right, Uh, but it's not even five years after you leave your formal study. It's you know five days. It's it's a challenge getting people to think differently about the world than they've been taught to think as they've you know become adults. uh, The influences they've had in their and their their lives growing up, their family, their and and even their favorite mentors if they have a mentor as a who was a favorite mentor as a teacher.
2: These you know, I, 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 People sometimes say that, you know, the solution to climate change is, is more education, like public education, and I sometimes joke that I'm one of the founding members of a group called Educators Against Education, uh, just because, at least my experience in the classroom, and this sounds roughly similar to what you just said, is that you should have pretty modest expectations yeah uh about educating even people who are in the class who are dependent on you for a good grade or whatever, right much less educating the general public about uh, about you know some issue. it's just it is it is very difficult to 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 do that and and I think you're right that you'll see cases where people can um, people can give you the right answer on the test and then they'll go outside of the classroom and they'll they won't have internalized the lesson. It's hard.
1: <laughs> well, you've talked about, you know, one of your objectives in life is to reform economics education. Are, are you asked to speak to econom- other economics professors or even high school economics teachers about how they deliver, you know, a curriculum and do and you have recommendations for, for them to be more effective and reach their students? Uh, and reten- increase retention levels. I've done a little
2: bit of that, but I'll be I'll be pretty modest about it. Um, you know, I I mean, like I think that the that the cartoon books that I've written, the cartoon introduction to micro and macroeconomics, I think are, uh, I think they're fine books, and I think that they point out something that a lot of educators miss, which is that there's an incredibly important role for motivation, right? Like it's not like you don't have information on the web or in your 600-page textbook. I just think that there are a whole lot of students out there who just don't open the textbook and uh, you know do what they need to do in order to pass the test. And if you can get, and this is kind of the goal of the, the cartoon books is not to teach everything that you need to know about economics in one cartoon book. Um, it's to motivate readers to, to, to want to learn more, right? Because if you can get students to want to learn more, then they can find ways to 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 learn more.
1: Well, you've provided me a great incentive to pick up uh, copies of those books, and and so I can begin to learn a little bit more about some of the nuances uh, of teaching economics. I mean, that's that's the the I know enough mainstream economics to get by in the classroom, and compare what is being taught uh, in economics with political economy that I'm you know, more familiar with. And um, yeah, you should pick up the books and I'll get 25 cents in royalties. And then you, can, <laughs> you can
2: tell me, me how I did.
1: My, uh, my own, my own books are available on Amazon.com. I wrote a, a three volume work titled The Discovery of First Principles. The, the, the first draft I thought was going to be a one volume book about 300 pages. And after seven years of writing, research and writing i had an 1800 page manuscript well uh it's it's not sold particularly well but uh i i think amazon uh, i think the booksellers think i'm deceased because (laughs) they keep raising the price actually so yeah (laughs) i will say like
2: when you know when i do comedy and i would love to come and do some comedy at the the henry george school or, or or elsewhere once covid passes um You know, my job is to make people laugh for an hour and hopefully think about some economics. And that's fundamentally a a different challenge than the challenge that educators face who are in the classroom, you know, every day. And, you know, when I teach classes, I warn my students that I'm not going to be I'm not going to be hilarious every day. And I might not be hilarious ever. Right. Like um, you've got content you got to cover. And, um, you know,
1: it's well you know, uh, perhaps, perhaps uh, our education director, Ibrahim Adram, will convince you to come back and do a seminar or workshop for, for us over Zoom. And we'll be able to attract an audience for you that'll uh, take you on uh, in, a, in a serious way and give you some things to think about, but also listen intently to what you have to say. So great. I would love that. Yoram, um, uh, this has been really enjoyable. Um, I'll give you the last you know, word, if there's some, there's a message that you'd like to deliver to the audience that's gonna tune into this that we haven't discussed so far, uh, please feel free to enlighten us before we close out our, our session today.
2: Well, I, I haven't really told any jokes, so I feel like I should at least point people to my website, standupeconomist.com, and tell a couple of jokes about, uh, you know, the stereotypes about economists. So I have a bunch of you might be an economist if jokes you know, you might be an economist uh, if you don't read human interest stories because they don't interest you. Uh, <laughs> if you might be an economist, if you've ever gone to a bank or other financial institution in the hopes of getting a date. Uh, if you plan to have your children born in December instead of January so that you can maximize the discounted present value, <laughs> it's called tax credit. And finally, you might be an economist if you adamantly refuse to sell your children because you think they'll be worth more later.
1: Here. Yeah, so, those are all great. There you go. Hey, it's, it's been wonderful meeting you and having this opportunity to have a conversation with you. And I hope that maybe we can do this again in a few years. And, and uh, by then, you'll be able to report some enormous successes with the campaign in Utah. And I hope uh, so. Absolutely. And, we'll, and, and I'll be able to report that we've made some progress in terms of affordable housing funding and land value taxation being implemented. Well, good luck to us all.
0: Yep. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.